the sports minister was arrested 25 times. All of those people could have just gone to another country, had a comfortable middle-class life, and, and just left their country, but they didn't. They kept the spy, they kept persevering. Welcome, everybody, to the 24th episode of Global. My name is Travis Green, and I'll be your host today for this episode. As a reminder, Global is a monthly podcast where we share stories and insights from authentic voices on one country per episode. This month, we are talking about a country in the middle of the Indian Ocean that, while small in population and landmass, is hugely important and very strategic to countries like China, India, and the United States. We are talking about the Maldives. Why should an archipelago nation with a population a little larger than Oakland be of interest to the world's great powers, you might ask? Well, for starters, the Maldives sits on the shipping lanes that carry two-thirds of the world's oil and half of the world's shipping containers. If that's not enough of a reason, the Maldives contributes to the world's highest per capita number of foreign recruits to ISIS. And if that's still not enough, I guess you're just going to have to hear why directly from our guest. Speaking of which... For this episode, we were extremely fortunate to interview three outstanding guests, including two who have been at the very center of Maldivian politics for some time now, and will give us a unique perspective. Our first guest is Minister Ahmed Nassim. Minister Nassim is the former Minister of Foreign Affairs under former President Mohammed Nasheed and is the special representative to President Ibrahim Soli. He has also been very involved in other roles in government and in developing tourism on the island. Our second guest is IRI's country director in the Maldives, John Costick. He's had a wide range of experience around U.S. foreign policy in Asia. At one point, he even served during the Bush administration as the assistant to the president's special envoy for North Korean human rights. Our final guest is Mohammed Aslam. Mr. Aslam has held several ministerial positions. He's been the campaign manager for President Nasheed and is the current minister of infrastructure and planning. All that said, please take time to rate us and tell us what you think. This is how more people learn about this podcast. And tell your friends about us, too. The more listeners, the better. And if you've got some spare reading time and want a different perspective on some of IRI's work, be sure to check out our blog, Democracy Speaks, on our website. Now, on to the show. First up, we've got Ahmed Nassim. Minister Nassim, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You have a long history in politics, starting in the Foreign Office in 1967. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to become involved in politics? You see, our family uh, have been involved in politics. Uh, my father was in politics uh, with the first president of Maldives in the 1950s. The house was always, it, it was very political. So it, you can't get out of it. So you have to get involved. After I returned from, uh, from studies in 1966-67, I worked in the foreign ministry and that was my first insight to foreign relations. And It was quite interesting for me because you get to meet a lot of people and uh, all the ambassadors that came. You know. So that's how it all started. And then I, I went to UN uh, as a representative and I was in the embassy in Washington, D.C., Afterwards, when my wife started having children, so we had to be more settled. So there was a break, and then after, afterwards I joined foreign ministry again. In the meantime, I worked in some, certain projects in Maldives, uh, like the mechanization of the fisheries industry. I was in charge of the project, and tourism. I was the one who actually built the first resort in Maldives. So tourism is very close to my heart. This was the only way to develop Maldives and to change from what it was. It was a lethargic, slow, tardy place. Of course, uh, everything changed with tourism. The first tourists in Maldives arrived in uh, February of 72 or 73. I can't remember exactly which date. Were some of the foreign policy priorities of the Maldives at that time focused on development? You see, at that time, Maldives was just a white sheet of paper, nothing written on it, you know. So immediately after the independence in 1965, President Nasser started looking for strategies how to develop Maldives. I discussed this matter of tourism, so we had some support from the government as well. Not financial support or anything like that, but support with legislations and various things because uh, it was completely new to Maldives. In fact, Maldives were very scared of white men that started coming in there. And we were never a country that was uh, colonized or uh, there was never any presence of uh, Europeans in, uh, in Maldives as such. 
So we had some difficulties in recruiting people in every area. There were no trained people. You know, we, unlike in colonies, uh, they had their legislators all worked out for them and uh, all that, but we didn't have that. We had our internal freedom right through, and uh, we were a protectorate. That is the kind of thing that changed. The tourism and the mechanization of the fishing industry coming together did a, had a massive impact on the economy of Maldives. You mentioned that there was no colonial presence in the Maldives and there was no parliamentary system imposed on it. In those early years, how did the Maldives deal with not having that example? Our first constitution was in 1932. Uh, women were given rights to vote and they were parliamentarians. That was a gift from the British because there was two major families in Maldives and uh, then they thought there should be a king and then the prime minister to run the country. That way, you know, they can share. So I think it was uh, uh, for that reason this constitution was brought in. But then it lasted a very short while and then the sultanate was again restored because uh, this is not something that people actually understood. People were a lot more comfortable with the sultanate. And also it would have been uh, quite difficult at that time because of uh, restrictions in travel through Maldives and, you know, voting and all these things would have been quite difficult. This is something that really was new and people don't normally tend to take up to things that they don't know, you know. From 93 onwards, people started talking about democracy and freedom and people's rights and all this. And at that time, we have had a, had a President Gayum ruling the country. We ruled under a very strong constitution where he had all the powers. He was the head of investigations. He was the head of uh, judiciary. He was the head of government. But the constitution gave him the right to do that. And uh, he did not uh, probably want to change the constitution. So younger people were demanding uh, that uh, there should be a change in the constitution and that people should have more rights. And then in the in to early 2000, 2003, we had uh, an incident where there was a lot of uh, trouble in the jails. That triggered a lot of violence in Mali. Courts were burned down and uh, police stations were burned down. And uh, what triggered this entire thing was the brutality and the tortures that was meted out to prisoners in the jails in, Ma in Maldives. That actually was the trigger for the government to start thinking that, you know, there is a necessity for a change. So he bent to the pressure. So things started moving. And instrumental in this was President Nasheed. And finally, in uh, 2008, we had this new constitution. And under this new constitution, we had the multi-party elections in 2008. And President Nasheed, uh, fortunately, won the elections through a coalition, of course, because it was a very young party and we had very few members in the party at that time. But uh, we were able to mobilize the grassroots. And uh, that was a success. And uh, those people are uh, riding the wave now. A lot of the people and organizations that IRI works with around the world are in a similar situation where they're trying to advocate for their rights underneath a still repressive system. What would you say are the lessons learned under the Gayum period for the rest of the world? I, I think you have to work very intelligently. You have to do it uh, in a way that is uh, not aggressive and hostile. Never do that because you don't succeed through that and gives an excuse for the repressive regime to be more repressive. The police will come and hit us and we don't react. They will paper spray us, we don't react. Very difficult not to. But that's what, uh, that's what President Nasheed actually advocated. And that was what our party advocated. So it's a very disciplined party. And uh, we were able to do that quite peacefully. Therefore, there was no reason for the regime to be, to be so hostile that uh, you go to the extent of uh, bloodshed. You had to work within the system to some extent and also pressure the system to change their way of thinking. And civil service is an important institution to do that. You have to have a lot of talk, you have to have the platform, you have to have the space. And if you don't have the space, you have to create the space. Yeah, Maldives is fortunate because it is very isolated in the sense that uh, it's not easy for any government to mobilize people in islands when we have a demonstration or when we have talks. And by the time uh, they try to prevent it, we have already finished what, what we have uh, started. You know? So a real study on uh, what happened in Maldives for democracy and how it was worked out would be very, very interesting. Definitely. I think that the Maldives is a particularly hopeful example, as there are a lot of places around the world that are currently experiencing democratic backsliding. 
Yeah, you have to have uh, grassroots activism. And uh, they are the seeds and the plant will grow. Very wonderfully put. Transitioning now to the presidency of Mohammed Nasheed, the first democratically elected president in 2008, you were the foreign minister under him. Did the Maldives' foreign policy shift noticeably under him? I, I wouldn't say the foreign policy uh, itself changed because we had a good foreign policy. We had, a, we had good relationship with all the countries and all our neighbors. But what we did was we became more active in international arena. Previously, we never took any initiative on doing anything. Uh, what triggered our uh, activities was we became a member of the Human Rights Council with the highest uh, number of people supporting uh, our candidacy. That gave us uh, a lot of space to work in the human rights issue throughout the world, everywhere. And then the, the other thing is we became very active in the environment area. And President uh, Nasheed was very vocal on, on these issues. We had a lot of success in those areas uh, because uh, environment impacts are felt you know, it's not something that's in the future for Maldives. It's ongoing. Uh, we have erosion in the islands. We lose islands and, you know, all kinds of things happen. The, our ecosystem is very, very sensitive. So we feel it just after a storm. We feel it very badly. Just when the weather gets bad, we feel it. When speedboats move around in the, in the atolls, we feel it because there's beach erosion because it creates a wake when it, it goes. So all, from all these things, we, have, we learned quite a lot. And also we learned quite a lot from our elders who have lived in these islands. And uh, I think uh, they have so much experience in how to protect their own islands and not to mess around with yes. this, uh, we, we did not believe that the solution to Maldives would be concrete because uh, we have 1,200 over islands. And how do you put concrete uh, barriers to the islands? So we need to find other ways. So now we are thinking of uh, growing coral reefs. We have been doing this work for quite some time, for about 15, 20 years already. We have been building coral reefs in Maldives. Uh, in the resorts, you know, the empty bottles, uh, plastic bottles. And many resorts have built reefs with that. You know, we put those bottles with sand and then we attach pieces of coral and that start growing. And the last one, we did uh, 3D printing of a coral reef. And uh, it's the first one in the world. It's quite amazing, actually. But uh, our problem is the temperature of the waters are going up now. So not every coral can survive now. So it's things like that. We need to do a very strong, very big study on what is happening to the coral reefs in Maldives. We are doing some studies, but I don't think that's enough. Because uh, we have to know exactly what is happening and what is the remedy for this. Certainly. Study is never enough. There needs to be a call to action that people respond to. Speaking of that point, I remember seeing in the documentary Island President that President Nasheed held a cabinet meeting underwater, which is a very striking visual image. What role can the Maldives, a traditionally marginalized country on the geopolitical stage, play as far as addressing defining challenges such as climate change? How do we deal with that? Adaptation uh, and mitigation. Now, these are the two, two things that needs to be done. Our view have always been, President Nasheed's view have always been that it is not uh, concrete works that is needed. But we have to find biological ways to protect our, our islands, like mangrove uh, building. Those are the things that are necessary. And uh, we are not able to do everything um, under dictatorships because there's no, there's no discussion on issues when they do something. Uh, when a company from somewhere comes and uh, you know, gives um, bakshish under the table to the president, then you can't do anything. He'll just go ahead and do it. Democracy is the solution to these kind of issues. Unless we have democracy, there's no transparency. Without transparency, people go wrong. Because we need discussion to solve our issues. Because the issues are not simple. And especially environmental issues. And uh, you, one cannot just come up on stage, a president, and say that there's no, there nothing like that happening. You know? Because the science is, uh, science is clear. You see, when we started, uh, there were a lot of skeptics. Even major countries like India and China, you know, they had the idea that uh, because the West uh, developed on uh, fossil fuels, that they'd be deprived of development. The fact today is that solar, wind, wave, and all these things are there. And in many areas of the world, solar energy is cheaper than fossil fuel. And uh, once you invest in it, it's, it's almost free. 
and you just have to maintain. The maintenance is very, very, very small. And it must be encouraged. The, the world should look into more research into these areas. Also, the batteries have to improve so that you can save the energy that, that you get and you use it in the night. Now it's not very efficient. Uh, I think there is, a, there is a very good chance that we can escape this calamity. And, uh, but we have to be intelligent and we can't be stupid. We must, uh, we, we must realize that this is the only way out. And uh, every, all the countries uh, must take this matter very, very seriously. Uh, you see, for example, we did not contribute to global warming. None of these small islands did. But then we had to pay for it, you know. It's not fair. At least the understanding and uh, effort have to be put to find solutions to this. And I think many countries are doing that. I think in spite of the fact that some of the countries, uh, uh, their national policies may be not so progressive towards these things, the local people and states and uh, various organizations are really at it. You bring up a good point. I think in a lot of these countries, there are elements of society that are working on these problems. And this underscores the importance of a democratic system to be able to generate comprehensive solutions. Tying that back to President Nasheed, who was forced to resign under military pressure, he penned an article in the New York Times, and I wanted to read a quote from that. The dictator can be removed in a day, but it takes time to stamp out the lingering remains of his dictatorship. With that in mind, and all that you just mentioned about the importance of a democratic system solving these problems, are those lingering remains still there? You see, this is very, very, very interesting point. Maldives had three years of freedom, and uh, people tasted this freedom, and they liked it. Then, through this freedom, came a dictator. Uh, he thought that he can go back to what it was before. But once people have tasted freedom, they don't give up. Once they have tasted freedom, they believe in it. Once we are able to get the message across to the people, dictatorships don't win. Uh, it's a stage that you go through, and then what you get is treasured. With this uh, second chance in democracy for Maldives, I think it is irre irreversible. People have realized that under dictatorship, this is what happens. And then uh, we were able to uh, throw out the dictatorship and then bring in democracy. And then again, dictatorial forces, as President Nasheed has mentioned, came into force. And then people didn't like it anymore. So now they know. Now people know. I think dictatorships are dead in Maldives. This is a good transitioning point to talk about what was happening under the presidency of Abdul Yamin and how this culminated in the historic elections of September 2018. He played it all wrong because he thought that Maldivians would like a strong man, sort of one who makes decisions and one who goes along to hell with the constitution and all that kind of thing. He read the people completely wrong because of the experiences that we have had and he never, he will never get these, these type of dictators where they come in like this. They will never get the right message. They will never get the feeling of the grassroots. They will never understand what is happening uh, in the minds of the people who are, uh, who are going to vote for him. So President Yamin was completely, absolutely sure that he will win because he thought he was charming, that his absolute rule was very, very nice and then people wanted things done. But the fact is, votes don't come just because you build a bridge or you build a road or you build a harbor. Votes come because, uh, because the person is compassionate, person is close to the people and is sympathetic towards their problems. Now, dictators, especially Yamin, thought he knew what to do for Maldives. There was no consultative process. People have got, had got used to consultative process because we introduced the local governments in the country. And the local governments wanted to get involved in their own island uh, developments. But none of these things happened. He thought he could sit behind a desk and dictate everything, and then the people will abide by that, which is what happened earlier. So in the end, democracy wins. I tell you, democracy wins if there are people who are they're willing to sacrifice and face few years in jail. It works. I mean, all of us in this movement have spent time in jail. It's inevitable. But anyway, now what that kind of torture that happened in the jails uh, cannot happen in Maldives. It's very difficult. And they cannot be done secretly. It will be exposed. Uh, so it has to be a step by step. You just can't go on the street and demonstrate and think that things will change. No, you can't be in a hurry either. It took us 15, 16 years to bring these uh, multi-party elections. It's like that. There are many monarchies, many dictatorial regimes around the world. And... Uh, there are lessons to be learned in Mo from Maldives. 
it may be a small country, but it's a template. The more that I learn about the Maldives, the more that I believe that it is a template for the rest of the world. So in September, uh, Yamin was unseated by this figure, Ibrahim Soli. Who is Ibrahim Soli? Ibrahim Soli was involved with the uh, democracy movement from the beginning. He's been in the parliament for 25 years. He has gone through the mill too, you know. And President Nasheed and Mr. Soli, they are very close friends. They grew up together. I think they are equally determined in areas of uh, human rights and freedom and democracy. So I think we are in very good hands. What we have achieved, I'm sure Soli will continue. He is not a person who is very much outspoken. But he's very intelligent, and uh, he is a person who is capable of keeping people together. From the time President Nasheed was overthrown in 2012, Mr. Soli has been uh, leading all the efforts in the parliament as well as in the party. You see, the idea is to produce people. Just because someone is not there, the entire thing doesn't collapse. So you need to have these uh, people coming up and opportunities created for them uh, because they were all in jail, so it was not possible for any leader of, the, of any party to contest. You've mentioned President Soli's ability to really bring people together. I believe he got 59% of the vote. So for the other 41%, how do you bring them in to participate in the Maldivian democracy? <laughs> you see, 41% of the people didn't vote for Yamin. I would estimate about uh, 15% of the people voted. The others were intimidated, forced into voting, and uh, threatened um, uh, with their jobs and various things like that, families or... You know, it, it was total blackmail. But if there was no intimidation, if there was nothing like that, I may be wrong, but uh, I feel very strongly that he would not get anything more than 10% of the votes. So we don't... We are not worried about the 41%. They are with us now. They're, you walk on the streets of Mali today, and ask somebody, who did you vote for? Ibu Soli. You see, these, um, these people who are not popular with people, they will only think of how to work out a strategy to win an election. Not through popularity, but through other means. Yeah. And this exact, Yamin didn't campaign. I mean, he went to a few islands. There was a tweet under a fake ID, which was Yamin, definitely. And then he said that uh, you don't have to be popular to win elections. I mean, it's one of those one of those statements that um, uh, that would uh, be made by a dictator, you know. So you don't uh, in a democracy you can't win an election without being popular. Let's talk about the future, in particular China's role. There is increasing Chinese military and economic influence in the region. Debt trap diplomacy is a term that we are beginning to hear more often. What are some of the Maldives' concerns about China's role in the region, and what are President Soli's plans to engage China? Uh, we have been uh, we have been told by China that they will come clean on uh, on their investments in Maldives. We would know exactly how much was invested because there was no transparency before. So we are looking forward to finding out exactly how much was spent because we will return every pound of flesh that was given to us. We will return, but not blood. You know, you see, most of the projects are not really how do you say? It doesn't make any sense to me. But it may not make any sense to me. It may have make sense to some other people. But what is important is to find out how these investments came in. Because the um, Chinese president is very keen on uh, getting rid of corruption in China. So I'm sure they will help us to find out who our corrupt officials were and how this corruption happened in there. Because obviously there was corruption. So we, we look forward to cooperating with China and finding out who is corrupt. And then we find out exactly how much was spent on these projects and then work out a strategy where we can pay back this. Because otherwise it becomes a human rights issue, you know. So we can't go there and we can't say that we won't pay. So we have to find a, find a way out. We are looking not for confrontation, we are looking for solutions. My last question, how do you envision the U.S.'s role in the region and involvement in the Maldives' democratic future? I think the role of the U.S. Uh, as a major player in the Indo-Pacific is absolutely crucial to maintain peace and stability in the Indian Ocean. We will give every support that is needed, and uh, we would want other nations in the region to also join with us. The best way to so solve these issues are to have joint policies, because Indian Ocean is a small ocean, and it's a very important ocean, because all the oil from the Middle East passes through Maldives, for example. Um, uh, there are three channels in Maldives where trillions of dollars of cargo passes through. 
And uh, to safeguard, we have a huge responsibility. We cannot do it. We don't have the means. So we have to have the cooperation of the United States, India, and others to do this. And uh, what is at stake here is the instability of the Indian Ocean. We cannot allow problems of other areas to come and park on our nice beaches, you know. We can't allow that. So we need to find ways of avoiding those and having good relations with everybody. At the same time, having uh, trade without interruption. But having uh, different countries in the region, having uh, different types of military arrangements with different countries, uh, signing one agreement there and another agreement there and another agreement there, I, I think this is the issue here. I think we have to be able to find even a loose arrangement within uh, in the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean countries to talk the same language so that we don't have to get into this type of difficulties, negotiating individually uh, things. And, and everybody must understand that uh, we are not going alone. Our security and our development and our trade, everything is vested as to how much cooperation we have among our countries in the region. This is a priority. So we must all understand that we are in the same boat. So we have to find solutions together. I think that's a strong message to end on. Minister Nassim, thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. Commenting on what we just heard, Mr. Nassim was able to give us a great perspective on many of the foreign policy priorities and changes that the Maldives has undergone. The main takeaway is that the Maldives is at the intersection of some of the world's pressing issues, from the impact of climate change to the increasing friction between Chinese and American efforts to project power. Accordingly, the Maldives serves as an early barometer of how these issues will be resolved on a larger scale in other areas of the world. For that reason, the world should be paying very close attention to the Maldives. For our next guest, we'll be speaking with IRI's John Kostick. John, thank you for joining us today. Of course. IRI has been working in the Maldives extensively with the Democratic opposition over the course of the last year. Additionally, you and the team have been working not just in Mali, but throughout the rest of the country as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the focus of IRI's work there? Up until this point, we've been supporting domestic civil society, so that's involved providing support to a group that did some uh, election monitoring in the lead up to the elections in September. Now IRI has a team out here that are doing a type of assessment um, after the election to see in what ways we can be more supportive. And so that's involved meeting with the newly elected government, the president himself, defense minister, sports minister, technology and communications minister, then meeting with the political parties. We met with all the parties that formed the coalition and just seeing what, what IRI could do to help support them in their priority issues for this first hundred days. They have a quite an extensive list of priority issues for this first hundred days. And uh, IRI is trying to just look for ways that we can provide support. What are some of those priorities? One of the main priorities that we've heard from a number of people in coalition is judicial reform. The previous government, there were some questions about the independence of the judiciary and other entities that might have influence over the judiciary. And so looking at judicial reform, and that can also mean just a requirement for a certain level of training for incoming judges that they have a, a law background. Another priority is decentralizing the government. Uh, most decisions during the previous administration were all made out of capital Malé. And this is a, a country that 97% of which is underwater, only 3% is uh, land, and it's spread over an immense space, and I think there's over 1,200 islands. And so there's island communities and island councils that are very distant from the capital, and they, the idea is to give them more power over the decisions made in those islands, to have funding go through the local councils. And that can be for things like sewage, for providing uh, clean water, for you know sports and recreation, for all types of things that help give empower those communities to just have the freedom to develop themselves. Um, that can also include engaging with international donors and engaging um, with different, different actors that could help stimulate their economy and, and provide a better quality of life. You mentioned judicial reform, which is essentially the way governments restructure the courts or strengthen the courts to be more effective and also help laws become better enforced. For our audience who may not be aware, can you tell us what the judicial system or the court's involvement was in the most recent elections as well as any previous elections? Well, there had been some cases of previous presidents, President Nasheed, that had been incarcerated and previous party leaders 
the, the leader of the JP party and the leader of the Adhoff party had also been in prison. And those, those sentences have all been overturned in the last few weeks by the Supreme Court. Um, also, the, uh, the previous government challenged the results of the election, and that also went to the Supreme Court. And that challenge was not upheld. The results of the election were upheld instead. And so that's what brought President Soli to power. And so those are some of the kind of the issues during the last administration, it did seem that maybe there was a bit of a heavy hand on the court's rulings that was brought down by the executive branch. And so as, as the Maldives develops into a more mature democracy, what they're trying to achieve is, is more of a system like in the United States, where there's a complete separation of power, where the, the Supreme Court is independent and qualified and is making rulings in accordance with the law. What is the Maldives' path forward to restore trust that might have been lost in the Maldives' uh, judiciary independence? One of the main things is going to be that just even criminal level offenses uh, be properly tried and those convictions carried out. There's a sense right now that sometimes lower level criminals that are arrested by the police due to their own connections, maybe with other entities that have power in the country, we're often let go. And so I think the, the population as a whole wants to see that stop. They want to see justice. There's also another to restore confidence would be looking to past cases of corruption and disappearance of political activists, seeing the, the perpetrators behind those brought to justice. And so those types of rulings, it would do a lot to, to rebuild that level of trust. Backtracking to the role of civil society, I think a lot of our audience might be unaware of the role of both coalitions and civil society. Can you talk about their influence in President Soli's campaign? We have to speak to that. The presidential system is, is like in America where the public votes for the president. It's not a parliamentarian system like in the UK or Canada where a party that wins a majority of seats then appoints the prime minister. Um, so in a presidential system, you don't usually have coalitions. You usually just have a party running a candidate. But what happened in this last election was the incumbent had a lot of power and there was a lot of concern that there might be some tampering with the election. And so the main three opposition parties all chose to back one single candidate, and that was solely Ibrahim Mohammed. He's the candidate who ended up winning. As the election got closer, actually part of the ruling People's Party of the Maltese, there was a bit of an internal conflict, and part, a number of those MPs split off, not formally split off, but sort of formed a, a different group within the party. And they uh, also backed President Soli. So that, that coalition is now considered to be four parties, being the three that I mentioned, and a breakaway division of the previous ruling party. And so that's how the, that's the coalition that ended up backing President Soli in this last election. They were successful. They, they won by, uh, I think, double digits when the final votes were counted. In our interview with Minister Aslam, he made the very salient point that infrastructure development is just as expensive, if not more so, than in the United States. I think uh, many of our in our audience might not be aware of how important the issue of infrastructure can be to a nation composed of multiple islands like the Maldives. Given the relative size of the Maldives economy, what do you think is a path forward for their infrastructural development? A major part of the new the infrastructure recently has been this bridge connecting uh, Hulumale and Malay, the capital, and the airport. And there was a bridge that was built by the Chinese, and that actually was a major political issue. So even though it was much needed, it, the price tag associated was quite high. And there's a lot of concern amongst the Maldivians that uh, China is maybe using a type of debt trap diplomacy to kind of uh, be a little bit heavy-handed in how they, they operate in the region. And so it's, it's both a blessing and a curse in a sense. Um, but the fact that it's there is now a blessing. The capital of Bali is extremely crowded, and this has opened up a whole new island of land for housing and development that can hopefully um, relieve some of the congestion in the capital. But that's just the capital. That being said, about half the population of the Maldives is in the capital. The rest is this, you know, these atolls, which are this, these islands that are spread across the ocean. And to get around, the locals have to use the same transportation that foreigners use when they come here as tourists, which is seaplanes and, and boat ferries. And so, for instance, our team just today returned from Ba'a Atoll. We were there meeting with a local island council, and that was a two-hour boat ride that was um, over open ocean in a motorboat. And so as you can imagine, that was a little bit rough, but that type of motorboat transport is the kind of the ferry system. There's also a few ferries that connect some of these, these atolls. Um, and so I think the administration is looking at ways to, you know, make some more, maybe more convenient ferry ties, more, a more extensive ferry system for the population to get around. Due to its geography, the Maldives 
has had to address issues like climate change with much more immediacy than the rest of the world. That said, on the traditional geopolitical stage, the Maldives has not been a major player. Given that fact, how do you envision the Maldives informing the rest of the world on issues like climate change? Well, the former president, who uh, he was in exile because he was after being removed from office, uh, President Mohammed Nasheed, uh, he's very vocal on this issue. And in fact, when uh, we met with him earlier this week, he, he was very emphatic about the need for major powers to begin to focus more on climate change. For He said, for you all, it's just an issue. For us, it's our life. What I've been impressed with, honestly, in the time that I've been here, is just the amazing intelligence, the amazing level of education, the the charisma of their of a lot of the major politicians and the people that are in their in their government. People that will go and speak at the UN, they'll speak at international conferences, who are just really articulate on this issue. And so I think the Maldives can really, I would say, um, punch above its weight, if you will. It, it can carry a lot more uh, cloud on the world stage speaking to that issue. They can speak firsthand to issues of climate change. Looking to other players in the region, the U.S. and India might have interest in the Maldives because of their proximity to global shipping routes. Can you talk about what some of the interests of the U.S. and India might be in the region? There's, yeah, like you said, strategic shipping routes through this region. Um, India is the, the next door neighbor to the Maldives. And so in your own region, you tend to be more concerned about what's going on. Part of the concern is also um, China's behavior in the South China Sea with the building of artificial islands. And so anytime China's having more influence in a region like this, where they can literally build artificial islands, so some of these atolls, um, land can be reclaimed, the airport, the construction projects recently around the capital um, involved a lot of land reclamation. And so if China were to, as part of you know an agreement with the Maldives, gain control over islands and then use those for airports, use those in other ways, I think that's the concern. Um, now I just want to say that that hasn't happened yet, but given the artificial island building in the South China Sea, other major powers are now keeping a closer eye on China in, in terms of all of its maritime activity. Gotcha. And what are some of the ways that the United States could maybe be a little bit more involved in the Maldives? There's a number of takeaways from even this week that, we had, that we'll be communicating to the U.S. government through some of their diplomatic posts. One, one is the need for judicial reform. There's some elements where IRI can provide assistance there, but I think there's even the need for very technical, higher level judicial input on, on, on judicial reform. Reforming the police force whenever you're dealing with a country that maybe does not have a mature democracy and you're, you might be looking at areas of corruption in the police force, um, outside traders, outside assistance from countries that have established legacies or for reliable, non-corrupt police force can be very helpful. And so those are some of the areas, just a few that the United States and other, other countries can provide support. So it sounds less like military and economic projections of power and more supporting democratic institutions. Yeah, Maldives is a middle-income country. So, and I, like you said, most of your audience may not be aware. Even for myself, not too long ago, if I heard the Maldives, all I thought about was resorts. And I think that's what most of the, the world, if they even know where the Maldives is, they, they just think of high-end resorts. But it, it is a country that has, has developed quite a lot in the last 40 years. Most of the, I would say, the middle-class Maldivian citizens will send their children to boarding school in, in Europe and the United States. And they are a democracy. They just had an incumbent who lost an election, and they had a transition of power, right? This is, that's, a, that's a huge. And a lot of what they need is a little bit more advanced than maybe some other countries. Um, they're at a higher level of, of capacity already. Just to close this off, if there was one point about the Maldives that you would want the people in the United States to take away, not just policymakers, but also just the common person, what would that one point be? Oh, inspiration for democracy. That's an easy one right now. I've been inspired just since I've been here. The party that just came to power, they fought a long fight. And the people that were fighting that fight were very educated, very gifted people that could have easily gone to the United States. Maldivian citizens can travel pretty freely on their passports. So all these people that have been in house arrest, who have been in jail, who have been beaten, um, who have been, the sports minister was arrested 25 times. All of those people could have just gone to another country, had a comfortable middle-class life, and, and just left their country, but they didn't. They kept this fight. They kept persevering year after year. And now this election, a lot of them are now in positions of extreme importance in this country and hopefully able to turn a corner. 
Um, and so that's been the most encouraging thing for me since I've been here. That's a very strong message to end on. John, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Of course. Summarizing a little bit of what we just heard, John was able to give us an outsider's perspective on a lot of the recent changes that the Maldives has been undergoing. He was also able to give a unique insight into some of the places that the international community and the United States in particular can lend a hand to the Maldives on this current transition. For example, judicial reform from prison system to the way that the executive branch interacts with the judiciary. These are issues that IRI and other members of the international community would do well to keep providing support to the Maldives. Finally, as John mentioned, though 2018 has seen democratic setbacks, democracy is far from being in retreat throughout the world. The transitions in places like the Maldives show that populations throughout the world still demand the ability to determine their own future through transparent, accountable political systems. So while the challenges and skepticism are very real, the future of the world's democratization is far from determined. One thing is certain though, people have a fundamental desire to be free. Finally, we will be speaking with Minister Mohammed Aslam. Thank you for joining us today, Minister Aslam. Um, to start us off, can you tell us how you got involved with Maldivian politics, in particular the Maldivian Democratic Party, or the MDP? Well, it all started when the MDP was formed in exile in Colombo with a brutal beating and, and, and murder of, of an inmate. And I was a student at the time in New Zealand, and in this whole incident, affected me a lot. And then as soon as I came back, I decided that, okay, I will no longer accept such sort of things and will join an opposition to the then government. So that's where it all started. And then when in 2005, the party was officially registered in Maldives, I became, I think I was the 48th member of the party. And since then, I have been part of the party. And then been there since then, 2008. Was heavily involved in President Sheep's campaign. And after he got elected, I had the privilege to serve the government as the cabinet minister, minister of house and transport and environment, until... President Nasheed was ousted in a very controversial circumstances that happened on 2012. And then last seven years in opposition, and now you come back to government, and now I hold a cabinet portfolio as the Minister of Planning and Infrastructure. For our listeners, there are essentially three different periods to Maldivian politics. The first being under President Abdul Gayoom until 2008. The second being the democratic period from 2008 to 2012 under President Mohammed Nasheed. And finally, the most recent authoritarian period under President Yamin from 2012 to 2018. You were involved in various levels, uh, especially with the campaign period with President Nasheed. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, I was part of the campaign team that was also forming the policies for the manifesto that was presented to the people at the time and also traveled to the islands with the then-candidate Nasheed on campaign visits. So basically, going door-to-door, talking to people, explaining the policies to the people, speaking out on the streets to the, to the people. So a whole lot of campaign activities in 2008, and, and people accepted what we presented to them. The September elections of Ibrahim Soli were lauded as a bit of a surprise. Were you surprised by the electoral outcome? To be honest with you, not really. Because we knew there was a majority opposition to President Yami for his actions and his unjust imprisonment of uh, political leaders, people were not happy at all. But people were not on the same boat when it came to which political party they would be supporting. There were a number of parties whom they were loyal to. So we knew if we all came together, we would a larger majority compared to what President Yamin will have. The challenge was forming the coalition. 
bringing out a single candidate because as four different political parties with major ideological differences in some of the areas, it was a tough job to get them all agree on a single candidate. Yes, definitely. I think the coalition element of this electoral victory has been missed by many outside observers. Can you tell us a little bit about the coalition formation process? I think the biggest factor on which we all came together was the injustice and desire for all political leaders to get rid of Yamin, uh, to win over him. That was the factor which brought us all together. And then political leaders being imprisoned is the only way they could have a, a fair playground in politics would be that President Yamin is, is no longer there. So that's what really brought us all together. Yes, the coalition aspect is very important. By contrast, the Zimbabwean elect- recent elections, the democratic opposition faced several challenges coming together behind one leader. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the different groups within the Maldivian coalition? Well, MDP is a more liberal sort of democratic party. Jimuri party, or what would be translated as the Republican party. There's a strong leader in that party, but had far less political representation in the parliament and also in the local councils. The Dalit party, which is the religious party, they have a, a more religious, Islamic religion-focused agenda. And President Kayum, the former former president, who is, is sort of a breakaway group of high-level politicians who came together as a breakaway from the then ruling party. That would be generally what the differences are in the parties. Yeah. Uh, Switching to look at the Maldives and its relationships with its neighbors in the region, its relationships with China and India especially are very important. Can you talk a little bit about those? India being the you know biggest neighbor, we have a traditional relationship with India, very close to the Maldives. We've always been a close neighbor. India has always been there for Maldives, like it has been there for every other neighbor. India was, you know, where Maldivians would depend on a lot of healthcare, medical travel there. With China, it's a newfound relationship within the past decade or so, where the Chinese have brought in a lot of substantial amount of money for building infrastructure in the country. So it's a much more recent sort of relationship. Maldives owes a substantial amount of debt in terms of loans to China. It is small by your scale, but big on Maldivian scale. In exact figures, I don't know, but over a billion dollars, I understand, is the debt we owe to China. I think China would be the country that Maldives would be owing most as a single country. And the Chinese are here. The Chinese presence is definitely seen in the Maldives. They've recently completed a bridge link between the capital island Male and the international airport. That's one of the major infrastructure that has been implemented by the Chinese. They have invested in many of the housing projects, some road works, but all of this has happened over a period of less than a decade. Thinking more thematically, what are some other challenges that the Maldives faces that it shares with other countries in the region? We do share a lot of challenges with our neighbors. We've also been very successful in dealing with some of those challenges. I mean, I think we have done really well in millennium development growth. Our poverty is, is much lower compared to the rest of the countries in our neighborhood. I'm not saying that we don't have it. Literacy is almost 100% now. We also have gotten rid of things like polio and some of those diseases, fighting many other, like TB, not common in Maldives anymore, malaria, I believe we are free of that. But we still have major developmental challenges. The thing is, for us, developing infrastructure, whether you build in Maldives or in the U.S., it costs the same thing. Protecting the shores, whether you build it in in U.S. or in Maldives, costs the same thing. Perhaps even more expensive, yeah. And we do face those infrastructure challenges and protecting ourselves. You know, economic growth. All developing countries face these challenges throughout the globe. I completely agree. And I think it's very important to keep in mind that, like you said, infrastructure development in the Maldives is probably more expensive than in the United States. 
Turning our focus to the recent democratic transition, the Maldives in its past has already seen one democratic leader, President Nasheed, be unseated through a coup. Are you afraid or do you think there is any risk of that happening again with President Saleh? Well, we hope it doesn't. I would agree that there have been a little bit of experimenting with democracy in Maldives. One of the things that I believe Maldivians have been doing since 2008 election. We have been voting not to elect someone. 2008 was more about not electing Kayu at the time. 2013, that was all about not re-electing President Nasheed. But this time, I believe that the biggest strength this coalition have to hold it for a five-year term is the fear of somebody like President Yami coming back. That will really hold us together. One more question to follow up on that. What are some of the lessons that the Maldives can teach other countries about moving away from simply opposing a bad choice and instead choosing or asserting your own democratic agenda? It takes time, isn't it? It takes time for people to mature in their democratic thinking. You know, in Europe and even in the U.S., to have a democratic system of governance took hundreds of years. And there was lots of bloodshed as we look back in history. So we've only been in this process for the last 10 years, only 10 years. We've had no civil violence or anything like that. I think Maldivians are learning from the failures of the past. And I think soon there will be a time we will go out and vote to elect someone rather than not to elect someone. Definitely. It'll certainly take time. Minister Aslan, thank you so much for joining us today. You're most welcome. Looking back over what Mr. Aslan talked about, he really was able to talk a little bit about the rapid democratic transition that the Maldives has undergone and how it was the result of a sustained civic and political effort over a long period of time. This entire process and the consolidation of democracy is something that's going to require a lot of vigilance. We'd like to give a final thank you to our three excellent guests. Minister Ahmed Nassim did a fantastic job of putting everything into some great historical context for us. You can get some more information from him on Twitter at Kirafa Nassim. We'd also like to give a great thanks to IRI's John Kostic, who provided us some great analysis of what the next steps are in the Maldives democratic process. Finally, we'd like to give a warm thank you to Minister Mohammed Aslam, who provided us some great context on the current challenges that the Maldives faces. And as this is our final episode for our second season, we'd like to give you a great thank you for sticking with us throughout 2018. We hope you learned as much from listening to Global as we have from putting it together. A special shout out to all of you who have taken the time to send us emails or leave us comments with your support and feedback throughout the year. We are always striving to make Global more compelling for our audience. Along those lines, we are excited to roll out new features for you in 2019, and we hope you'll join us in January to see what those are. Until next time, folks.